for in sure. our life growing up, it was like the center of everything. Everybody worked there. And in fact, when we were kids, my brother and I, we'd roam around the factory like factory rats and grab grab half-baked Switzer licorice off the drying racks and go up on the roof and eat it and and in fact, watch him build the arch, eating Switzer's licorice. And if that isn't a St. Louis memory, wow. Yeah, you have just established your bona fides right there. Um, and if you're oh, to be a kid again, helping yourself to Switzer's licorice at your family's factory. I'm Sarah Fenske. This is St. Louis on the Air. In 1888, a young Irish immigrant started a candy company in St. Louis. His name was Joseph Murphy, and his partner in the company was his brother-in-law, Frederick Switzer. Joseph made candy, Frederick made sales, and the company they built would become a St. Louis institution that flourished for more than a hundred years. I'd swap my ice cream for a friendly dog, my yo-yo for a bright green frog. I'd swap my sister for a new transistor, but I'll never swap my Switzer. I'd swap my broom for a hockey stick, my cookie for a magic trick. I'd swap my cat for a ten-gallon hat, but I'll never swap my Switzer. Switzer, red licorice candy, chewy, long-lasting, delicious. One bite and we'll discover why. You'll never swap your Switzer. And that business we're talking about, of course, is the Switzer Licorice Company. Uh, Joseph Murphy's great-grandson has now written a book about that company. Patrick Murphy is the author of Candy Men, the story of Switzer's licorice, and he joins us today. So, Patrick Murphy, welcome to the show. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for having me. Your great-grandfather, Joseph Murphy, he had quite a story. Who was he and what brought him to the U.S.? He was an interesting guy. He was born during the potato famine in Dublin, and his family had a candy store in Dublin. Hmm. And so he grew up learning how to make candy. And when he was in his 20s, he got involved in the Irish freedom movement. He was a Fenian, and he got uh, involved in an uprising in 1867, which was suppressed by the British. And he got away, he escaped, but they found his name on a list of rebels. And if they caught him, they were going to hang him. Mm. So yeah, he packed up and came to America in steerage. He ended up in St. Louis. He had nothing. He moved into the poor Irish part of St. Louis called Kerry Patch. And all he knew how to do was make candy. So he married a young woman. At the, he met at the, working at the Dunham Coconut Factory in St. Louis. <laughs> Her name was Margaret Switzer, and she had a brother named Fred Switzer. And so Fred and Joe got together. Joe made the candy in a tenement in Kerry Patch, and Fred sold the candy from a push cart through along the riverfront and through Kerry Patch, and they started this company, which was originally mm-hmm. called Murphy Switzer Cam- Candy Company. This would have been in the 1880s. Now, I'm sure you wish they had kept the Murphy there, uh, since that's your last name. Do you know how the Switzer name ended up becoming the dominant name there? I do, and you might notice that I've got a picture of the Murphy Switzer Candy Company on the front of the book. you got to so. play that up. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, you know, I got, I got that in, you know, for the family. Uh, in 1893, this is going back, but in 1893, there was a major depression, like the 1930s. Mm. It was just as bad. And the company went bankrupt, along with like half the companies in St. Louis. And what happened was Fred's, Fred had another Switzer named Mary Ellen Switzer, who had traveled around the West. She was another character, trading horses. And she had some money. She took some of her horse trading money, bought the inventory out of bankruptcy, and gave the company to 
her brother Fred, <laughs> which did not please my great-grandfather very much at all. After that, it was the Switzer Candy Company. But the Murphys stayed um, involved to the point that even your own father worked for this company. This was a partnership between two families where it went on for, for more than 100 years that these two families, even though they were very different families, they continued to both work this business. It, it, Thanksgiving dinners must have been very complicated back then. <laughs> and by the way, I want to jump in and tell you that it doesn't sound Irish, but the Switzers are Irish. They're as Irish as the Murphys. It's just that they came from Germany, went to Ireland back in the 1700s, and then you know they became Irish. And when they came to America, they were as Irish as anybody else. So it's a story basically of two Irish Catholic families in the poor part, the Irish part of St. Louis, building the American dream basically on a foundation of candy because eventually my great-grandfather Joe got back with his brother-in-law and they started making candy. Joe was inventing all kinds of chocolates and caramels and things and, and, and Fred was selling them. And what happened was his children, in other words, my grandfather and his brothers, and then eventually my father's generation, my father, they all ended up working at the candy company. So in our life growing up, the factory, which is, you know, so well known by most St. Louisans with the smell and the big sign right along the Eads Bridge. It's kind of a it's kind of a part of St. Louis history. But For in sure. our life growing up, it was like the center of everything. Everybody worked there. And in fact, when we were kids, my brother and I, we'd roam around the factory like factory rats and grab grab half baked Switzer licorice off the drying racks and go up on the roof and eat it and and in fact, watch him build the arch, eating Switzer's licorice. And if that isn't a St. Louis memory, wow. Yeah, you have just established your bona fides right there. Um, and if yeah. you're listening to our conversation here, you may well have a Switzer's memory of your own. We're interested to hear it. Or maybe you have a question for Patrick Murphy about his family's remarkable story. You can give us a call at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. You can also send us a tweet at STL on air. Or you can email us at talk at stlpublicradio.org. We already heard from some of our listeners on social media. We have a Facebook group and also Twitter, and people weighed yeah. in immediately when they heard we were talking about this. Um, Francie wrote on Facebook, I remember going down to the riverfront and workers throwing licorice out the window to us. It was warm and <laughs> soft. Is that not also a great St. Louis memory? And I, I did want to mention, Patrick, um, for people who haven't been in St. Louis quite as long, they hear Patch, they might think we're talking about that neighborhood in deep South City. That is not at all uh, where no. this factory was. Carrie Patch, completely different thing. Tell us where that neighborhood was. Cary Patch started in the around the 1840s when a whole bunch of people came over from County Cary during the potato famine and settled on uh, another famous Irish St. Louis in John Melanfi's land. They kind of squatted on there and eventually it became a neighborhood. But during the famine, a lot of the people who came over from Ireland were very poor. And they were Catholic, and which kind of freaked St. Louis out a little bit. Even though it's named after a saint, you know, there was a certain element of like nativism and anti-immigration feelings. Imagine that. <laughs> and and uh, it, was, it was a tough neighborhood run by gangs. Uh, it was a very violent neighborhood. Uh, but Cary Patch, the borders keep changing depending on what decade. But it would have been about where Pruitt-Igo is, where the car housing project is. Mm -hmm. um, it's uh, mostly flattened now. There's not, not much there. But it was just on the northwest edge of, of St. Louis, probably maybe running as far as Jefferson. 
Okay. And one of the interesting things I learned in your book, I learned so much in this book. It's it's just such a joyful read and, and so much good history in here. Um, they did not start with licorice. You say that didn't start until 1940. What were some of the candies they made before they got into the licorice game? Well, uh, again, giving some credit to my to my great-grandfather who knew all of it. He was like a sugar whisperer. He could do amazing things with sugar and caramel and chocolate. And he was always inventing these new products. One was called the Buttermel. That was sort of a, a, a caramel bites. They had a, a, a product called the Chocolate Soldier, which was big for a long time. And it wasn't shaped like a soldier. The branding of it was, stands up to St. Louis summers like a soldier. <laughs> because refrigeration was... Yeah, candy was a really seasonable business back then before good refrigeration. They had gum... Uh, they had taffy. Uh, and around 1916, they, there was this new thing coming on the scene called licorice. And, and different companies around the country were creating licorice because it was real sweet. You didn't need sugar because licorice is naturally sweet. And you could make it into all kinds of shapes like cigars and pipes and things like that. And uh, so, but it was only a division of the factory. In 1940, when war was inevitable and sugar rationing was inevitable, they switched everything over from chocolate, caramels, and taffy and gum and everything to um, to licorice. And when the war was over, uh, I guess it just seemed easier for them to just stick with the licorice rather than retool the whole factory. It was selling very well. And uh, it, at first it was just black licorice, bites and bars. You say they were initially skeptical of red licorice. This just wasn't quite pure enough. I remember my grandfather, and the reason it's called Candy Men is because my dad, my grandfather, uncles, everybody, they proudly refer to themselves as Candy Men. We're Candy Men. You know, that's, that was their thing. And uh, my grandfather was against, uh, set against cherry red licorice at first because it isn't really licorice. Hmm. It's candy, but it's not. He said, it's not licorice. It doesn't have the anise root in it. It's not authentic. It's not real. But he was right about a lot of things, but he was wrong about that because cherry came along and actually started out selling the black. <laughs> this was their biggest sale for a long time. Uh, it was. We have another memory that came in on Facebook. Nonora writes, I remember Switzer's licorice as my family's favorite everyday candy back in the 1950s. The crackle yeah. of opening the little package was so inviting that when our dad came in the TV room after dinner opening his pack of cigarettes instead, we were distinctly disappointed. And she adds this. Patrick, you'll find this interesting. She says, by the way, back then we pronounced it with a long I, not a short one, like as in Switzerland. They basically said it's Schweitzer's. Was that ever a correct pronunciation? No, but people did have trouble with it. And they had an advertising agency one time that said, you've got to somehow work this out. People are calling it Schweitzer's and it's Switzer's and there's brand confusion. But the Switzer's call themselves Switzer's. So I'd, I'd go with that. And I know what she's talking about, the smell and the, and the dad bringing the licorice home. My dad smelled like the riverfront, that, that licorice smell. And he told me his dad did too. <laughs> I remember... The, him coming home from work, the door opening, and before you could even see him, you could smell the licorice. And he was always bringing it home. In fact, licorice was a basic food group 
at our house. Yeah, that's that's got to be a powerful memory for you, having this this smell associated with your family and and your dad. Um, your dad was was one of these characters in this story who kind of lingered for me. He had not meant to be a candy man. He ended up in embracing his destiny to some extent, but but you describe him as as maybe a bit disappointed that that this ended up being his lot in life, and and then it ended up um, his life ended up taking a turn um, after the company was sold to a much larger conglomerate. Tell us the story of. of what happened to your dad then? Yeah, my dad was an interesting guy. I mean, he he he, he wasn't a, he was a charming, good-looking, you know, chain smoker. You know, he he could, he could swear as if it were poetry. I mean, like an art form. You know, he was he was just an interesting, interesting guy. But he wasn't a family man. But he had a family anyway. So he got out of the war. He was in the Pacific. Came back. Um, tried to sort of get back into civilian life, went to New York, tried to write a novel, came back to St. Louis, worked at a couple of radio stations. Hmm. Uh, he worked at KXLW, which I think is off the air now, but he tried to work uh, in, in, in radio, worked at a couple of stations, and uh, then he had a family around 1949, and he had to get a real job because radio pays a lot better now. He <laughs> paid like 40, $40 a week back then. So, you know, he joined the factory. I mean, he was good at it. He was good at what he did. But he really, he, you know, his mind was always somewhere else. Mm-hmm. I like to say, I remember a copy of Walton on his desk mm-hmm. all the time there. And, you know, he was a dreamer, like his <laughs> grandfather. But, you know, he, he did it. He worked there. But, but, but the, sorry, the, the, the sorry thing was is that uh, he, um, he got fired. And once the company was sold to uh, Beatrice Foods in the late 1960s, Beatrice, big corporation, wanted to do everything their way, and he was doing it the old way, and they fired him. And uh, yeah, he took, he took that hard because it wasn't just a job. It was like he was the third generation of people who, who had worked there. Yeah, that's And the so funny tough. thing is, writing this book, I actually interviewed the guy who fired him. He's in his 80s now. <laughs> And I tracked him down and called him up, and needless to say, he was a little surprised to hear from Frank Murphy's son, but uh, I told him that it was cool. I'm not writing the book, you know. Yeah, this <laughs> to, is not a hit to, piece. To get even. And the funny thing is, and this is, this almost says something about life and closure and cycles and things, we got to like each other. We're mm-hmm. sending emails back and forth now. He read the book. He loves it. Uh, he thinks I got the story right. And uh, it was kind of a closure thing, you know, like when I was 18 years old and somebody fired my dad, I wanted to kill that guy, you know, but... But um, all these years later, I find out he was just doing his job, too. Yeah, Everybody's he, doing the best they can. He comes across sympathetically in this book that he's trying to make these corporate overlords happy. He wants to try to save this St. Louis factory. I get the sense that what was really the beginning of the end for this company, um, and it did have a rebirth. I don't want to say it's over. Switzer's licorice is back. But what was the beginning yeah. of the end of that iteration of it was when this Beatrice that, that bought it changed the product. They had this new fancy equipment they brought in. Um, but it sounds like it just didn't taste the way Switzer's licorice had tasted. You know, and that's kind of the story like of, of like America on a broader scale. One aspect of America is when family companies, you know, like the factory was like a 19th century factory where quality was everything. And they made a profit. They they did very well. But but it didn't have the big corporate mentality that, that happened when Beatrice bought it. And so it's like, how can we cut back the union? And how can we... How can we get cheaper products? And how can the, pro- the process that you're talking about, it used to take four days to make a batch of licorice. 
from cooking it in kettles to cooling it and, and uh, extruding it and shaping it. They developed a process that took 20 minutes. Mm. And so like four days to 20 minutes, you know, you've got to lose something along the way. And for a while there, sales declined. And then Beatrice sold it to another company, which sold it to another company that was based out of Finland. <laughs> and eventually Hershey's bought it. And Hershey's in the 1990s basically killed it. They had their own licorice product, and they killed it, and there was no more Switzer licorice anywhere. Well, it, was, it was gone. It was so sad. At the point that Hershey killed it, it sounded like Fred Switzer or, or one of the Switzers wanted to step back in and, and buy it. They just weren't interested. Were they trying to shut down the competition there? What, what was going on? Yeah, basically, they had, they had a product called the Twizzler, which is still around, mm-hmm. and uh, they just didn't need it. I mean, people make decisions in corporate boardrooms that – you know, have nothing to do with loyalty to family history and tradition. It was like, yeah, yeah let's promote the Twizzlers, kill the Switzers, you know, I mean, products. It was, it was as simple as that. But you're right. Uh, uh, Fred Switzer, a, a grandson, uh, wanted to buy it. Uh, a lot of the people wanted to buy it. The Teamsters Union wanted to throw in money hmm. to, to try to help somebody buy it because, you know, it was like 150 jobs. And, um, you know, a, and, and also a part of St. Louis history, Switzer's licorice. But it didn't work. Hershey's and then to make, to make things even worse, so there's no product. And then in 2006, how sad, the building blew down. I mean, that's just, that's one of the most devastating parts of this story is all these neighborhoods that, or the neighborhood that you described so well, and this factory that, that was such an icon for so many people, all of these places are gone today. Was there just some sadness as you were going back and revisiting these places in your mind that no longer exist? And I'm, I'm, I'm not going to say anything bad about the arch, for God's sake, you know. But there was a, an incredible, huge, old neighborhood there of warehouses and factories that went back to the, you know, after the fire of 1849. It was this incredible neighborhood, and it all got torn down. So the factory was one of the few remaining buildings on the original grid of St. Louis streets, one of the old factories. The factory was built in 1874. Switzers moved in there in 1911. The original Switzer factory was actually on First Street, right between where the legs of the, of the Gateway Arch would be. Hmm. So, so it had I mean, to it really go for us to get that arch. But, it, but it's still sad that all these places were gone. And as you say, it was a storm that took down the factory that people probably remember best. It was falling apart. It had been deserted for about 20 years. Um, somebody in the 1990s with Laclede, uh, Laclede a Redevelopment Corporation, actually gave me a key uh, around 19—mid-90s. Uh, mid and I, I spent about an hour wandering around the factory. No electricity. The floors were rotten. The roof was falling apart. And it was really so strange because when I was a kid, like, I knew it as this vibrant factory with gears and belts and conveyors and people. And to wander around there when it was just like an old deserted church, you know, it was very strange. And so they did, finally, it was so, it was so devastated by the storm that they had to tear it down the following year, 2007. So one would think that Switzer's in all shapes and forms was removed from the planet Earth forever. Hmm. But it did come back. That's a story that's in the book, Candyman. Um, we did hear from a couple more listeners. Fred from Glendale called in to say that growing up in Webster Groves, he lived near a Switzer's executive. He said the kids in the neighborhood used to beg him for candy, that they really looked forward to Halloween. That's a good connection right there. And Rick and oh, yeah. Bevo called in with a question for you. He says, yeah. did Switzer's make those individual twisty candies that used to be sold as penny candy back when penny candy actually cost a penny? Yes. They yeah, did. Absolutely. Okay. 
Yeah, but before 1940, they still made licorice, but on a smaller, you know, not the whole factory, in a smaller division of it. So they made all kinds of candies. They made candy pipes and candy cigars and candy twists. And in fact, I think what he's talking about was called the jumbo twist. <laughs> well, that's a, those are some good candy memories there. As we say, it's not just candy. Uh, Switzer's is back. And the most remarkable part about this, as you detail in your book, Candy Men, is it was actually brought back by people in the Switzer family. This this is still part of the original family in a way. What, what allowed them to bring this back after Hershey's had killed it? Well, a lot of people might know the name Mike Switzer because he had an advertising agency in St. Louis back in the, in the 1980s. And uh, Mike sold the agency and... Um, he was looking around for something new to do, and he was really fascinated with what he calls legacy brands, brands that, that go way back to what they were originally. And it occurred to him like a bolt of lightning, oh, my name is Switzer, Switzer's licorice. Let me see if I can buy that back and, and, and you know, get it going again. So he actually negotiated with Switzer's, got the trademark back, and set, you know, set the whole production process, joined up with a guy named Dan Warner, and uh, now, speaking of Kirkwood and Webster, the headquarters is on North Gore in Webster now. And they're, uh, they, you can buy Switzer's licorice anywhere in the, comp- in the country now. So the sad thing is it's not made in St. Louis. The company is still headquartered here, but the factory is not here. Is that correct? The actual production is, is not in St. Louis, but the, uh, and the recipes have had to change a little bit because the techniques have changed over the last hundred years. But it is very close to the Switzer's licorice that everybody knows and loves, except they've come up because they were always, even back then, coming up with new flavors and things. But now you can get uh, things like cherry cola Switzer and lemonade and green licorice. And uh, there's a whole variety of different flavors that, that you can get now. Do you think your great-grandfather would be rolling over in his grave over that? Or do you think he'd be happy that the Switzer's brand continues? No, he would be going, yeah, you guys are doing exactly what I did. You know, find out what the public is looking for. You know, give them flavors, give them innovations and, and, and keep it going. I think Fred Switzer would be really happy uh, to know that uh, after all of these years that, uh, that it was still out there and people were still enjoying it. Hmm. So this book, Candyman, it's such a fun read. And you, you give a caveat in the beginning that a lot of this is based on family lore, but you also note that as you began researching this, it was very frequent that the Switzer and Murphy recollections matched each other. It sounds like a lot of these old family stories are true. I'm wondering, is there anything you were told was, was true growing up that you learned while researching? Yeah, that one we got wrong. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, actually, it's funny, and this says something about or- the power of oral history, I guess. Uh, uh, the, uh, in the 1960s, my, my great uncle, Uncle Fred, sat down and did a four-hour oral history of the entire family. And he was born in 1887, so he actually worked in the original plant and, and knew Switzer really, really well. And that was a great source of, of uh, information to be able to sort of test against other sources like the Missouri Historical Society and, and newspapers.com, newspaper articles. But the funny thing was the Switzer versions of the stories were remarkably similar to the, uh, to the Switzer, uh, to the Murphy versions of the stories. So, you know, actually, I didn't find anything that, that we were told as kids that wasn't, 
that didn't turn out to, to be verifiable. Wow. Well, that's that's amazing. And it is an amazing story. We want to encourage people to get Candy Men. That's the story of Switzer's Licorice by Patrick Murphy. We do want to mention we had a caller. We're not going to get to her. But uh, Mary mentioned that uh, her mother passed away two years ago at age 100. She was friends with the Switzers. She remembers going to their house. They had a closet dedicated to candy. If that doesn't make you <laughs> smile, I don't know what does. So, Mary, thank you for sharing that. And, and Patrick Murphy, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, sir. This was fun. Podcast episodes of St. Louis on the Air are available at stlpublicradio.org. Or you can subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, the Stitcher Podcast app, or wherever you get your podcasts. St. Louis on the Air is produced by Evie Hempel and Lara Hamden, with production assistance from Aaron Dorr. The senior producer is Emily Woodbury, and the executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. That's 90.7 KWMU. Thank you for listening. I'm Sarah Fenske. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.